Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 53, Revelation, He Who Has an Ear. And in this episode, we're going to take the time to investigate a repeated refrain at the end of the addresses to each of the seven churches, the refrain, He Who Has an Ear, Let Him Hear What the Spirit Says to the Churches. And we're going to take the time to look into the Old Testament to find the origins of this phrase and then to spend a little bit of time investigating just what exactly it is Jesus means when he uses this phrase at the end of every one of the addresses to the churches. So I am very excited to get into this episode. I hope that you are prepared to really dive in deep into the Old Testament, but I will do my best to make this as clear as possible because you will be greatly benefited from rightly understanding what this phrase means and how it applies. So let's get right into it. As I've shared in previous podcast episodes, much of the content in the book of Revelation is actually rooted in the Old Testament. And I I tend to think that that's a lot of the reason why there are some quite bizarre and strange interpretations of Revelation. And that is because, again, the point of this podcast being that many, many people don't really know how to read the Old Testament rightly and therefore aren't really thinking about the Old Testament when they approach the book of Revelation. But um, a lot of what is in Revelation does come from the Old Testament, and that holds true again for the phrase that we're going to look at during this episode, he who has an ear, let him hear. Now, the origins of this phrase actually take us all the way back to the book of Exodus, um, chapter 32 to be exact to a scene where Israel creates and then worships a golden calf. Now, I've referenced this chapter uh, in at least two previous episodes, if not more. I can't actually remember. But in episode five, Made in the Image of God, we talked about this in terms of why Israel wasn't to make images, and that is because human beings were supposed to be the image of God. And therefore, if you embody God's image in something other than a human, you are clearly going to distort it. Um, And then we also looked at Exodus 32 in episode 27, Priests in Need of a Priest. And in that episode, we landed right in the heart of Exodus chapter 32 regarding Aaron's role as a priest to the people before God and what Moses does as his role as a priest before the people to God. And so if you haven't listened to those episodes or it's been a while since you have, I highly encourage you to go back and re-listen or go back and listen to those episodes for the first time as episode 5 and episode 27. Um, But just to recap here for our purposes today, in Exodus 21 to 31, Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai with the Lord God receiving from him instructions for Israel's tabernacle and the specific laws and guidelines for how Israel as a nation will be able to serve the Lord and the world as a kingdom of priests. That's why Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the law. Israel is going to need guidance. And he's on the mountain for quite a while. We're told that he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And the people down at the base of the mountain start to grow restless, wondering when he will return. So let me just read the first handful of verses uh, from the book of Exodus 32, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. 
And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now that takes us through Exodus 32 verses 1 through 5. And what I want to point out here is that this is a strange scene to many modern readers. Uh, Many modern readers of the Bible find the idea of idolatry to be a very foreign concept. Um, To us, we, many of us have grown up just thinking, well, there's only one God. Therefore, the idea that you would bow down and worship other gods is just really strange to us and we don't understand it. And as I've talked about, um, particularly with episode 46, um, where we, we dealt with Baal versus the Lord and how you know which one you are actually worshiping based upon the way that you live your life. Um, these themes are helpful when it comes time to looking at idolatry because what is happening when you focus your attention on an image and you capture one aspect or one characteristic of the God you claim you are representing by that image, but you focus on one characteristic potentially to the exclusion of all of the other attributes of your God, then you will get a skewed view of who he actually is. And I think that there are probably lots of things going on in Exodus 32, particularly as they relate to the construction of a golden calf, but I'm going to focus in on one or two of those areas and just ignore the rest for the time being. And what I would like to focus in on is for you to place yourself back in a context where Israel is on the base of Mount Sinai waiting to receive the law from the Lord. Israel had just spent 400 years in captivity to the oppressive, powerful, strong, right, you know, ruling right arm of oppression under a Pharaoh in Egypt in Pharaoh's army. Israel served the whims of Pharaoh and were required to do backbreaking labor and were oppressed and cried out to the Lord under their oppression. And the Lord, of course, as you know, sends Moses in to rescue the people from slavery in Egypt. And so through the series of 10 plagues where Moses is um, the Lord's man to go in and represent to Pharaoh the kind of God who is demanding that Pharaoh let his people go free, Pharaoh refuses and all manner of chaos breaks loose in Egypt. The Nile River, Egypt's source of life, is turned to blood, which is a symbol of death. I mean, you know, the Lord is showing himself to be powerful. He's sending plagues on the people. He's sending fire from heaven. He's having locusts, you know, swarm in and devour the crops. And he's having frogs come up out of the river and and get in everybody's food and in their bowls and in their homes. And then boils break out on the people's skin. And every one of the plagues was a warning sign, was a demonstration of the fact that Egypt's gods and all of their oppressive power and grandeur were nothing in comparison to the Lord. And so the Lord shows himself to be quite literally more powerful than Pharaoh and all of Egypt's gods. And throughout the Old Testament, when you want to embody strength and power and grandeur and greatness, you can and oftentimes can't do 
um, demonstrate that with a with an ox, with an oxen, with a calf, something of this sort, which is precisely what Aaron and the people are led to do. So what I want you to try to imagine when you think of this golden calf situation is I want you to think about it in terms of Israel just watched their God, the Lord, defeat the strong oppressive regime of Egypt led by its Pharaoh. The Lord has clearly shown himself to be more powerful than Pharaoh ever was. And therefore, when Israel sets up a golden calf and Aaron declares to the people, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, he is identifying a particular attribute or a particular characteristic of God. He's declaring a feast to the Lord So this is not Aaron primarily deciding to go and worship another god. This is Aaron putting an image in front of the people, an image that he thinks most clearly embodies the character of his god, of the Lord, that is most worth worshiping. And the image that Aaron puts forth is a strong, powerful oxen. It's a strong, powerful calf. It is a symbol and an image of the strength and the power and the might that the Lord God has over the people, over the nations, over oppressive kings, etc. This is what Aaron and the people are worshiping at the base of Mount Sinai. They are worshiping the strength, the power, and the might of the Lord. Now, the Lord and Moses are on top of Mount Sinai, and in verse 7 of Exodus 32, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold... It is a stiff-necked people. Now, this little phrase, it is a stiff-necked people, is actually quite comical on one level and, of course, incredibly sad on another. But if you've ever been around a farm or you've ever been around cattle or ever been around cows or oxen or whatever, if you've ever noticed when you attempt to lead, let's say, a heifer in a direction that it does not wish to go, it will stiffen its neck, implant its feet firmly into the ground, and it, it remains um, very, very stubborn. It won't move. And so what's happening is the Lord is describing to Moses something that is what Jesus is ultimately going to pick up on here in the New Testament. But what I'm trying to get us to understand here is that the Lord God tells to Moses, this people is a stiff-necked people. This people is a stubborn, wayward people. This people is actually beginning to resemble the very God that they think I am. This people is beginning to image the God they think I am. And their stubborn, stiff-necked practices are a reflection of the kind of God they think I am. They think I am a calf, a God primarily embodying strength, honor, power, and might. And as a result of that, they become impatient when my servant is on a mountain 
for 40 days, way longer than they think is necessary for him to receive these instructions. After all, we're on the side of a God with power. We're on a God, we're, we're on the side of a God with authority. We're on the side of a God with, with might and strength and, and honor. And why on earth should we have to stay down here and wait for Moses to receive some kind of command? We know what we're doing. Our God's going to kick every other God's butts. Like, we don't have a problem here. Why, why, are we having, why are we having an issue with waiting? And this is what slowly begins to settle into the people's minds. And there's a famous book, famous to me anyway. I might have referenced it before, but it's called We Become Like What We Worship. And it's a book by G.K. Beale. And the front of the book has an image of a golden calf. And it's representing this idea that when we look at a particular view of who we think God is, we over time will begin to embody that in the way that we live. This, of course, was the way the world was set up. We were to be God's image bearers in the world and to rule the world on his behalf as he himself rules it. But if for a moment we begin to think that the reason why our God is worth worshiping and what it looks like to embody God in the way that we live and in the way that we rule, and we conclude that the greatest attribute and the greatest character of the God we worship is his power, strength, and might to defeat his enemies— then we will become the kinds of people who view power, strength, and might in our own lives as the pinnacle, as the highest, highest point there is of what it means to be godly. Now, where this idea of becoming like what we worship really comes from is from Psalm 135. And allow me just to read verses 15 through 18 for you. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them so do all who trust in them. And this is why in the book of Jeremiah, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 5, we read this, Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? You see, we will become like what we Worship, And if we set our hearts and our affections on things like golden calves, we will become stiff-necked and stubborn, which we will read that throughout the New Testament even when Stephen preaches in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, and accuses the religious leaders who are listening to him, who are upset at the things he is saying as being stubborn, as being stiff-necked, as always resisting the Holy Spirit. These kinds of ideas all stem back to this idea of we become like what we worship. And so in the book of Isaiah, when the Lord calls Isaiah to preach to the people in chapter 6, after giving a list of five straight chapters of unbelievable idolatry, which has led to unbelievable injustice um, throughout the nation of Israel, the Lord calls Isaiah to be a spokesman, to go and tell these people the truth. 
And yet the idea with idolatry, the idea with being deaf and blind and unable to speak in the same way that the idols we worship are deaf and blind and unable to speak, those take on metaphorical and yet very real realities in the lives of people, people whose hearts are so set on things like power cannot even hear explanations or commandments that have to do with caring for the weak, ministering to the broken, because to someone whose heart really believes that the Lord is best embodied as a God of strength and power, they, as well as their particular tribe, would think that when they embody strength and power, they are most faithfully representing their God. And the Lord knows, first and foremost, that the way then to get people to respond to the things that he needs for them to know is by actually preaching to them the truth And yet he knows that because idolatry is so rampant in the lives of the people and their hearts are set on so many wrong versions of him and therefore wrong versions of themselves and of one another and what the Lord actually expects out of their lives, he tells Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now, it's almost as if when you read that passage, you think, oh goodness, the Lord is telling Isaiah, just go preach to these people and tell them how hopeless it is for the rest of their lives. Wow, that sounds a bit cruel and a bit harsh, and yet that's not what the Lord is actually saying. What he's saying to Isaiah is the idea that in order for the Lord to communicate true compassion and grace to the people who believe that the Lord is best embodied by strength and power and destroying of one's enemies, they're going to have an impossible time listening to what you're saying. So I'm preparing you, Isaiah. I'm going to make you strong because you're not going to find success in your preaching to a hard-hearted, wayward, idolatrous people. In the book of Ezekiel, the Lord makes this a little bit clearer. This is what the Lord says to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14, 1 to 5. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet... I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel, all who are estranged from me through their idols. Now, Ezekiel 14 explains to us the problem that we're faced with in Isaiah chapter 6. It's this idea of people who have ears but don't hear, and they see but they don't understand, and they don't get what's actually happening. Why? Because they are worshiping gods who have mouths but don't speak, eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear. Those who worship them become like them. 
And so what the Lord tells Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14 is that let's suppose somebody comes and they want to seek my answer to a a dilemma in their life. They want to come before me and they want my counsel. They want my wisdom. They want my insight. But they have placed what he calls the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. So they are staring in the face of some aspect of me, some idol in their heart that they have placed in front of their face. So it's almost like you and I having a conversation with one another and you take your hand, we'll call that the stumbling block, Um, in your heart, your stumbling block of your iniquity, and you place it really, really close to your face so that your fingers are, are blocking the view that your eyes have of what's actually in front of you. And the Lord's question to Ezekiel is as follows. If I answer my people and I give them an image of me that's going to help them with their problem, are they going to be able to even see or hear the message that I'm giving them while that idol is right in front of their face blocking their sight? The answer is no. So what does he say? He says, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols. So here's what the Lord is saying. He is saying the only way to actually give an answer to the question that you are seeking is to show you all of the idols that you have actually placed before your face that are actually getting in the way of you hearing the truth that I'm trying to communicate to you. Let me give you an example. Have you ever half jokingly and half, you know, sheepishly said, well, don't ever pray for patience or that's something that's definitely going to show up in your life, you know, ha ha ha. We seek the Lord God who tells us in Galatians 5 that one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. One of the evidences in the life of a person that the Spirit has control and that we are rightly imaging Jesus through the Spirit is that patience will be evident in our lives. What then is the one thing that the Lord God has to show you when you begin to wish for cultivating patience in your life? He's going to show you all of the places in your life where impatience rules you. He's going to address the stumbling block before your face. He has to. Because if he does not answer you in accordance with the idol that you've placed there, you will misunderstand what he's saying. And you will go right back to, well, if that person would just get their acting gear, well, if that person would just quit annoying me, then I wouldn't have a problem being impatient. And, and I would add this to, to issues of control or issues of fear. There are people today in churches all across the country that spend their time praying that the Lord would work in certain situations or that it would make certain things happen. But the reason they're so obsessed with making those things take place is because, number one, they really like the feelings of being in control and they hope that God will work out situations such that they get to maintain control. Or we sometimes are people who are very, very fearful at root. And so our prayers are driven by the need for God to do what we want him to do so that we don't ever have to face our fears. Yeah, but control and fear are both things that are rooted in visions of God that are not real. They're visions of of idols that we've placed before our faces, and he wants to address those idols in order to get 
to our hearts. And so all through the Old Testament, Israel was constantly tempted to build golden calves. In fact, when Israel splits into two nations and you have the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah, when Jeroboam the king becomes king of Israel, he's afraid that half the men and women and children in his part of the country are going to go south and go back to Jerusalem to the, to the nation of Judah in order to continue worshiping in the temple. He doesn't like that idea. So he builds two golden calves and he sets one up in the northern part of the kingdom and one up at the southern... Uh, down at the southernmost tip, and he decides that he can then encourage his own people not to return back to the southern kingdom and worship the Lord in the place that he set up, but he wants to maintain control of the people and where their loyalties lie. He wants their loyalties to lie with him, and so he embodies the Lord once again, like Aaron did, as a golden calf, saying, yes, power, strength, control, might, these are the kinds of things that best embody our God. And therefore, when I rule you with control, power, strength, and might, I'm best imaging our God. So let's have a worship gathering around this golden calf to embody the view of God that I want him to be and that I want to embody as your leader. And so the golden calf issue from Exodus 32 is worshiping the Lord as power, strength, and might only. And if he is worshipped as might and power and strength only, then what is the one thing that must never be embraced in this God's presence? Right. Weakness. Brokenness. Vulnerability. Why not? Well, because God's name won't be honored. You know, admitting weakness admits we didn't love him enough to obey him in the first place. It admits that he really wasn't strong enough to come in and and conquer our, our enemies. But the things that Israel misunderstood, the things that they never, ever got right, was that you could say, sure, God is powerful, God is strong, God is mighty, But a better question would be to ask what the Lord God uses his strength and might and power for. Does God, does the Lord God use strength to drive out weakness? Or does he use strength to come to the aid of the weak? Who is the Lord? Exodus 32 and on through the Old Testament displays for us Israel's constant limping between these two views. Baal or the Lord. The golden calf or the Lord. When Moses is frustrated, as is the Lord in Exodus 32, he has a conversation with God that spans a couple of chapters. And the Lord tells Moses that this people is far too stubborn. There's no way he's going to go with them into the promised land. And Moses says to the Lord, if you don't go with us, don't even send me up with these people. We have to have your presence with us. We have to have you with us or there will be nothing about us that will distinguish us from any other nation in the world. The rest of the world needs to see how great you are and you've called this people to be your means to do that. So you've got to stick with us you've got to stick it out. Would you show me, Lord, what it is about you that really truly sets you apart from every other God? 
And it's a fascinating question. And we get our answer in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What is it that makes the Lord unique among every other God that exists? It is the fact that it is his compassion, mercy, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness the very characteristics of the Lord, mind you, that he has already had to demonstrate to his own stubborn, stiff-necked, and wayward people in Exodus chapter 32. So the fact that the Lord decides to go with Moses and the people is a testimony to the kind of character that this God has. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. And so this idea of idolatry shows up time and time and time again. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene in the Gospels, particularly throughout many of his parables, he often uses this phrase again, he who has an ear, let him hear. What Jesus is saying is if you worship idols that have ears but do not hear, then in many of Jesus's parables, he is addressing things that are going on. He is addressing the presence of idolatry in the hearts of his listeners. The points of Jesus' parables are always intended to uncover and expose those hidden elements of the human heart in such a way that people would choose to lay down their idols, or in the words of Ezekiel, remove their stumbling blocks from before their faces, and choose to set their gaze on Jesus alone. This is why Jesus teaches in parables. And when people ask him why he does it, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, where he says, you will keep on hearing but not understanding and keep on seeing but not perceiving. He is addressing the fact that the majority of the people that listened to him preach had wrong views of God, had wrong views of what he had called Israel to do, had wrong views of what their role was in society, had wrong views of who the blessed people were, had wrong views of what it really meant to rule the world well, had wrong, had wrong, had wrong, had wrong. And so his message to them was always, as it is to us, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You have to repent from a view that you worship a God of power and strength only who does not care for the weak. And the biggest issue that Israel faced in the Old Testament, their issue of injustice in treating one another the way the Lord God treated them was that they did not understand the way the Lord treated them. Israel over and over thought the reason the Lord rescued us and saved us was because we were better than the other nations. The reason the Lord God came in and saved us was because he saw something in us that was more special than the rest of the nations. And the Lord repeatedly told them that that was not true. He does not come in in the Exodus to demonstrate his superior power and strength and might to obliterate the enemies. He uses his power, strength, and might to set oppressed people free. And this is precisely what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 
He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, why would the gospel be foolishness to those who are perishing, um, to would be folly to those who are perishing? It is because you are saying that the way your God demonstrated power was to suffer and die at the hands of the Romans. That's ridiculous. No God who's actually powerful, no God who's actually mighty, no God who's actually full of strength, no God who's actually victorious would ever stoop so low as to receive death and insults and critique and mockery from the powers that be. And Paul's point in sharing this with us in 1 Corinthians is actually that's exactly what Jesus has done. The idea is I've heard from, a, from, from an author that I've been reading recently. It's the power over idea versus the power under idea. And power over is a mindset. It is power is the enemy of weakness. And that is the golden calf. The power under mindset is that power is the servant to weakness. In John chapter 13, when Jesus is preparing to wash his disciples' feet on the night that he was to be betrayed, it says, Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father and that he was going back to the Father, stripped off his outer clothes, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus knew the place and the position and the power and the honor that belonged to him at God's right hand. And because he knew that, he placed himself far below his disciples to serve them and to wash their feet. We become like what we worship. In our own lives, we embody the things we believe are true of God so that we may ultimately resemble him. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the very next book that Paul writes in the New Testament, he says this, which is really, really helpful for us to make sense of what Jesus means in Revelation 2 and 3. Here's what Paul says. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, in Jesus' address to the churches, the, the entire phrase of which this title to this episode is just a part, is, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what's really interesting about that statement is that it is Jesus who is addressing these churches. And yet Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it's the exact same with 2 Corinthians 3. As you and I behold the glory of Jesus Christ, we stare into his face and we see the kind of God he is and who he was when he embodied the Lord God on the earth. A self-sacrificial, compassionate, power under, servant to weakness type of Lord. 
when we behold the glory of Jesus and we look at him in that way, we are being transformed into the same image. This is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3. In his image, the image that he's referring to is the same kind of word that's used throughout Scripture for idol. We are being transformed into that image ourselves as those who also want to embrace the self-sacrificial, compassionate, servant to the weak, power under embodiment of what it means to rule the world well. We're being transformed into his image and who does this? The spirit does this. The spirit makes us like Christ actually, in reality. He actually transforms us into the very image of the one we set our eyes on. Idolatry blinds us to this. Idolatry does not allow us to set our eyes on Jesus. And so what does Paul pray for most often in the, for believers in his letters? Well, here's just an example. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul knows that our eyes, when they are set on anything other than the Lord Jesus, are going to resemble in some ways the way Psalm 135 tells us people's eyes are, dis- are persuaded wrongly when they have them set on idols. Idols of made of wood and stone, silver and gold, they have eyes but they cannot see, ears but they do not hear. And this is the theme that is used over and over again. And so when Jesus is addressing the seven churches in Revelation, and he tells them that, remember, it is the Spirit who is working this transformation in you. It is the Spirit who is going to draw your attention back to the image of me that I presented John with of myself in chapter 1. It is the Spirit who is going to work in you the type of salvation that I want to work in you and is going to work in you the transformation that needs to take place in your hearts. Recognize that I am going to have to address you as well as among those people who just because you have ears on the sides of your head does not mean that you will automatically hear what I say. And this is tricky because what this actually means is that Jesus and the Bible will even say things that are very clearly written on the page And if you and I have our hearts set in places other than Jesus, we will completely miss the things that he is saying to us. And this is one of a handful of reasons why you can read the Bible numerous times over the course of your life and stumble upon a verse that you know you've read before, but it has never meant to you now what it it has never meant this to you at this point in your life you you're like where have i been what have i been right the spirit is working in new understandings of who jesus is he's working in new understandings of who you are and who you are to become and as you begin to shed poor views of god and poor views of yourself and poor views of others you will have the ability to see what has been there the entire time. But the Lord has to remove the stumbling block that you've set before your face 
He has to remove the hand that's in front of our faces, blinding us from the answer to the things that he's actually telling us. And he is, in the same way that Jesus is, in the same way that John is, trying to remind us that when our hearts are set on Jesus, when we actually see Jesus and we find ourselves willing to truly lay down everything and follow him, then we can begin to see what has always been there. That's all the time that we're going to take for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you to those of you that have recently written a review on Apple iTunes. I really appreciate that and would encourage any one of you really, if you've been listening in and have not yet written a review, it doesn't have to be anything fancy, but it gives others a chance. I think once we get over 25 reviews, it'll really begin to pick up when it it shows up in searches for people that are looking for things like a podcast such as this one. So thank you again to those that have contributed in that way. Thank you for tracking as we dive into the book of Revelation and really begin to explore more about what the Bible means and how to rightly understand it. Have a great week.